with this thunderstorm going on. I hope it's not going to you know, turn into a shouting match. <laughs> and so, should you have difficulties certainly hearing you know, the voice, you know, then please certainly give Doug and certainly me a sign, and Doug will hopefully turn up the volume. Now, the topic for today's discourse is appearance and reality. And first question, the way things appear, um, does this always reflect reality or is identical with reality? What would you say? No? So, are there many such cases or just a few cases where there's a divergence, a difference between appearance and reality? There are many, many such cases. And one of the reasons for us to be here meditating is to look into just that aspect. You know, to see what is uh, just, uh, to see through the appearances in order you know, to get at uh, what is ultimate reality. To start you know, with an illustration, illustrations are beautiful because you know, they kind of bring you know, the essence of something across. Imagine buying um, a bunch of apples. Uh, uh, they look really uh, tasty. F mm, the skin or the peel of you know, those apples uh, uh, is, uh, has wonderful colors. Uh, you know, some red is there and uh, you know, some light green is there. And certain, you know, so the appearance is just superb. You, you know, then get back home and uh, uh, you put these certain uh, apples into your fridge and certain uh, maybe the next day you decide to have an apple or two for breakfast and then comes the big moment and uh, so you bite into this beautifully looking apple and it turns out to to have a flat uh, and certain, uh, to have a flat certain taste, there's nothing to it, there's no juice to it, uh, it's more of a disappointment certain, uh, than um, uh, any fun of, uh, and uh, there's no fun in eating that apple. So, with our human existence and certain, uh, what we, what appears is certainly one thing, and what really happens is another thing. In the context of our topic, it certainly is justified to take a look, not a very profound look, but at least some look at two terms known as conceptual reality, samuti satcha, in 
the Pali scriptural language and certainly then sometimes also referred to as Vohara such and then on the other end we have ultimate truth in Pali referred to as Paramata or Paramata Satcha. Now a short certain definition for conventional truth would be a commonly accepted truth and a definition for paramata such would be truth that is true in the highest or ultimate sense. Now, there are many things that fall under the category of uh, conventional reality or uh, conceptual reality. Among these, we have the form or shape of an object its color, its size, its name, and things certain as such as uh, the distinction made into uh, man and certain uh, woman, and certain uh, then uh, maybe um, uh, a lesbian or a gay person, etc. So, from an ultimate certain point of view, we look at things that certainly cannot be reduced further. We're looking at essences, so to speak. Now, among concepts, there are such certain things as the concept of form in our meditation practice sooner or later we will find out that the shape or form of the entire body or a part of the body, or maybe just a particular sensation, that suddenly this over time might suddenly very well dissolve. And what suddenly remains are just the bare sensations. Now, 
among concepts we have footnote the concept of footnote time it certainly may seem that certainly time is uh, a very well defined uh, unit or, or, or matter however in the meditation practice, we might notice how mm, at times the sense of time becomes quite relative. When the meditation is unfolding nicely, wholesome mental states are uh, present, then uh, one hour of sitting meditation passes, it seems, uh, very quickly, maybe just uh, seemingly, uh, just in ten minutes. But on other occasions, it certainly could be, especially when uh, difficult bodily formations, difficult mental uh, states are predominant, uh, then an hour of 60 minutes uh, may uh, seem like taking forever. Albert Einstein has uh, postulated the relativity theory and certain with that showing that even time is certain a relative matter. Now, when we take the investigation with regard to time a bit certain further, then a person who is immersed in the experience of Nibbana, for such a person, will there be any sense of time? No. Nope. And uh, that is correct. Now, the, when it comes to the ultimate certain realities, the Buddha speaks of four such certain things, namely consciousness, mental factors, and certain nibbana are said to, sorry, Consciousness, mental factors matter, and certain nibbana are said to be ultimate realities that cannot be reduced any further. The four ultimate realities could be further subdivided, namely in those conditioned ultimate realities, namely consciousness, mental factors, and matter, and then as an entirely different category, we have Nibbana.
Now, we're all engaged, certainly here, in a mindful contemplation of certain predominant certain formations, and certainly this includes a mindful contemplation of the body. And certain as part of this, also, um, well, what certainly makes up you know, this body. The Satipatthana Sutta, as certainly given in Majjhima Nikaya, volume 1, section 57, says, or, or instructs, one reviews the same body, however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements thus. In this body, there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. So on occasion in your own meditation um, practice, when observing predominant certain bodily formations or objects, did your observation lead you to you know, the intuitive understanding that eventually there are just certain these certain four uh, elements and certain work. Or did you find something else there? <laughs> now, you know, scientists, when they speak of the body, they say it consists of a certain percentage of materiality and uh, um, of bones and so on, and certainly it also consists of a certain percentage of water. What's the percentage for water, roughly? 70, 70, 80 percent, yes, that's it. And so just imagine you know, your own body you know, predominantly you know, consisting of, uh, of water. And then you add in a couple of bones and uh, you know, then uh, the wind element certainly will also be there and cause certain uh, motion motion movements of you know, the various you know, body parts and um, then on occasion um, you'll notice certain you know, the temperature you know, element so heat uh, let's say you know, after a meal you know, the um, the stomach you know, will be digesting you know, the food and in this certain process you know, creating a lot of fertner heat at other times uh, but one might certainly find you know, the body to be you know, somewhat cold. Now, we may have, we may hold our own body in great esteem. 
especially when we're young and handsome or beautiful. We might pass, we might spend hours and hours in front of a mirror and uh, applying makeup to it near this very body. Men and women alike you know, these days. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and then adding some perfume here and there. Mm. Now, this may be, mm, when we're young, we may see our own body like this as something very attractive and uh, something that is important certain to us, something that we can rely on. And certain something that is different, that is special, unique um, in certain ways. But then, maybe 30 years later, 50, 60, 70, 80 years later, when death occurs, what happens to this body? It decays. And even more than that, well, it decays where? Uh-huh. So let's say uh, your relatives decide certain to not have an ordinary you know, funeral. And uh, um, then the body will, uh, will be placed in a coffin, the coffin will be placed in a grave, and certainly then um, whoever is present certainly will uh, put certainly the soil uh, back onto the coffin. And certainly maybe a year or just a few months, a few years down the road, the coffin will be gone and what remains of that previously so strong and healthy and attractive body? Elements. Just elements. There you go. Just the elements and in the end, when this body turns into a corpse and ends up in, in, in the earth, then it will be not much different from earth. It will be, in the end, actually just that. Except for, on occasion, let's say a skull or parts of the skeleton that's... Uh, 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 that remain remain intact for archaeologists maybe a thousand years later uh, to be unearthed. So if you look at certain of the matter in an objective manner, what appears when we are young and strong and healthy, when our body is certainly young, healthy and certainly strong, and what eventually happens to it and its certain essence, then you will find a huge difference there. And it's important to see this, to see that 
what we refer to as our body, in the end, it just consists of these four elements, namely solidity and liquidity, temperature and motion. That's that is all. And when death has occurred, this certain body will decay, decompose, and certainly turn into soil. So at that point, there there is no more difference between the external earth element and the internal earth element. So the internal earth element being that whatsoever part, at least partly, what makes up the body while it is certainly alive, and certainly then when death occurs, when the decomposition of the body has certainly taken place, then there is no more difference between the internal earth element and certainly the external earth element. Now, when one undertakes certain, this sort of a reflection, then what happens uh, with regard to the body? What happens to one's attitude in regard to the body? What's that? Detachment. Compassion. Detachment. Oh, detachment, there you go. So, a detachment arises. And this notion of my body, or the body being the same as the self, all of this makes a lot of sense. It no longer makes certain sense. Now, when this certain detachment occurs based upon clearly you know, differentiating between appearance and what actually uh, is occurring, namely ultimate certain reality, you know, then we will suffer less. So if on occasion this body is certain sick, well, you know, then we just accept. If on occasion or when the body is no longer that attractive, that strong and certainly healthy as in the past, well, then it would be much easier to accept this. Having observed 
with strong mindfulness, strong and continuous mindfulness, over the last uh, two you know, weeks, predominant you know, sensations as uh, you know, they occur in you know, the body, do you come to the conclusion that bodily formations are rather impermanent or permanent? Impermanent. Was there any single object, that certain material object, that you found to be permanent? Yes, no? Not a single one. And even the most solid and possibly chronic pain over time will change, will break up. And with that, it becomes clear that material phenomena which are part of this certain body are impermanent or everything but certain permanent. Now, there's another aspect certainly here, especially when our own body or you know, the body of another you know, person is you know, young and certainly attractive. This certainly may give rise you know, to uh, some what? Attachment, yes, desire, and uh, um, somehow or other feeling close to uh, that uh, so attractive body. But if you see things in the, the right certain perspective, maybe looking at it and thinking of the situation, now, what uh, will happen in 50 years from now? No, no, then, <laughs> no, 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 then that attraction, that attraction, that certain desire for you know, this so beautiful um, body, you know, that certain might certain weaken. Now, within the last uh, two weeks and uh, earlier uh, retreats, you will have surely found some object or material object or other that uh, you could fully identify with, as this makes up the, uh, the ego, the I, the self. 
Does anything come to your mind? No, body deformation. Any particular aspect that you like very much, that you appreciate very much about your own body? Yes, Jen? Pardon me? Oh, being able to walk. Yes, okay, good. And certainly that ability to walk will last forever. Still some more? When you what's that? Ah, pleasurable states, bodily states, indeed. And so, did those last forever? Are they still, do you still experience them? Nope. Now, when we mindfully investigate this body of ours, we will notice that from an ultimate point of view, it consists of these four new primary elements, and we will further come to understand from direct experience that certain of the body and certain of the parts certain of that are that come along with it, you know, that all of these are uh, impermanent and having to you know, put up with constant you know, changes in terms of bodily formations is greatly satisfactory or not? Is a source for great satisfaction? Would you say so, Lynn? Not. And this is certainly correct. Now, in carefully investigating the body, we eventually find that even the most attractive um, parts of the body are not all that uh, uh, attractive. And the part Satna that Satna we might want to identify with, those Satna too, are they really worthy to identify with? The strength that might that we might possess when we're young, maybe fifty, sixty years later, that strength will be gone. The endurance the strong or strong and stable health you know, that certainly we possessed uh, when or that certainly was certainly present in in uh, the young days that's uh, um, that strength later on will vanish
หนึ่งใน terms of using consents there are a few more you know, things to consider you know, right there the notion of an I of a self of a being that certain notion is obviously not an ultimate reality but rather and just a concept just an aspect of conventional reality however the buddha on many occasions as certainly recorded in the texts, especially the Nusutantas of the collection of Fatna discourses, made reference to the I. So I did this, said this, etc. So what do you think about this? Was he speaking in terms of ultimate reality or in terms of conventional reality? Which one? Conventional. Conventional, there you go. And so it's uh, important to or not to take you know, those you know, statements as statements of ultimate reality but rather as uh, um, relative statements now there in the Diganikai in its first volume, section 202, contains a passage where the Buddha remarks about his use of concepts, personal pronouns, in the following words. Thus, there are these worldly expressions worldly terms, worldly conventions, worldly concepts which the Tathagata uses without grasping them. So there's a huge difference between not seeing the self as uh, or sorry, uh, um, difference between seeing the self as uh, a form of ultimate reality and certainly uh, then making use of terms such as I and my and mine and certainly uh, then in the case of someone who has practiced you know, to you know, some extent and who has seen through you know, the you know, superficial appearances and understanding the true nature of a self, understanding that this is not, mm, um, not an ultimate reality and still making use of uh, these certain uh, terms. Uh, 
Now, the Samyutta Nikaya, in its certain first volume, section 14 and certain 15, contains four stanzas, and the discourse is entitled The Arahant. And the last two stanzas, all of, sorry, all four stanzas deal with just this very problem of the, the way one is using language. And the last two gatas state, when a retreatant is an arahant, consummate, with taints destroyed, one who bears his or her final body, is it because the person has come upon conceit that he or she should say, I speak, that the person would say, they speak to me. And then, the Buddha himself replies to this or answers his, uh, the question that he's asked himself. No knots exist for one with conceit abandoned. So an arahant is someone who has, um, ex, ex, what's the word, who has totally uprooted all mental defilements, including pride and conceit. So no knots exist for one with conceit abandoned. For him or her, all knots of conceit are consumed. Though the wise one has transcended the conceived, he or she may or still might say, I speak, he or she might say too, they speak to me. Skillful knowing the world's parlance, one uses such terms as mere expressions. So the difference that here really lies in the absence or presence of deep understanding. When there is certain deep understanding and one has seen the well the vanity of yeah, the vanity of a self, then one can still make new use of personal pronouns, but not in being invested in those. As human beings, we tend to identify with lots of things. Would you have some examples? 
gender jobs. Oh, gender job. Yes, okay. What else? Family. What's that? Family. Family, yes. Family having you know, having children or you know, the mother having children or not having children. Yes. Race. Faith. No, race. Or race. Yes, indeed. What about age? Nationality? Still? What about wealth or absence of it? What about your you know, social status? Do we at times identify with our education? Yes, no? We do. And there are plenty of things that we tend to identify with that we think make up what we call us as certain human beings. And in other words, these are certain concepts that the mind is generating and suddenly then firmly adhering to, thinking there's a reality to this, and not seeing things according to reality, one then suffers once our identification is certain in question. So what happens to a mother who has two children and suddenly then both of them die? What happens to that, to her identification as a mother? I really don't know, I'm asking. Ah, so it's a challenge that mm, the previous identification mm, with the children and certainly thus one being a mother of certain two children when talking to other people, uh, introducing um, one certain two children and all of a sudden those two children are no more. And Satna that then is strongly challenging that very identification. Now, if a person happens to be an extremely affluent certain person and strongly identifies certain with this, and certainly if then owing to some great misfortune, all the wealth or most of it is certainly lost, this can be, uh, can be a terrible thing for the person. Now, what do you think? Making much use of certain concepts, is this really helpful in mindfulness practice? Yes. 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 Yes.
Bang, you're saying no. It's not suddenly helpful. In ordinary life, of course, we need to use certain concepts. They help to understand situations. But when it comes to the mindfulness meditation, we really want to go to the or see the very ultimate reality of things. So getting caught up in concepts, in other words, conceptualizing a lot, this is certainly considered an obstacle that an obstacle to spiritual progress. And the Venerable Sari Buddha, one of the two chief disciples of Fatna the Buddha, enumerated six activities indulging in which or delighting in which retreat and spiritual progress would be hindered. And the last of those certain six is just that very prolific conceptualization. The danger involved here, as Satna Sariputta continues to explain, is that it might prevent a person from breaking free from realizing Nibbana, and it may cause a person to remain in bondage. Now, to take the exploration a little bit further, namely, we've seen that through mindfulness practice that material formations are impermanent, that they're subject to suffering and certainly they lack a self. There's no no need to identify with those material formations. Now, you've been practicing mindfulness for the last two weeks and you will surely have come across and have had an opportunity to take a closer look at feelings. So pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So based on your experiences until now, would certainly you uh, say that uh, 
or what? Uh, let me ask differently. What did you find out? What did you find out about those feelings? They come and go. They change. Yes. And what else? They're a mental phenomenon. Uh, they're a mental phenomenon. Yes, uh, no, that's correct. And uh, with this certain uh, different uh, from the physical you know, uh, formation, from materiality. Still? Ah, they lead to aversion and craving, yes, indeed, in the absence of mindfulness, correct? And, wrong? They arise according to their own nature, not Uh-huh, they arise according to uh, their own causes and conditions, not according to one's wishes. And so, Have you, on occasion, have you identified with this or that feeling, especially with the pleasant ones? Yes? Mm. Pardon me? And the identification leads to suffering around certain feelings, indeed. So, when a pleasant or some experience is there that goes along with it, pleasant certain feeling in the absence of mindfulness the mind most likely will get attached to that certain pleasant feeling and will want to hold on to it for as long as certain possible now and that hope to to be able to hold on to it sooner or later will be uh, well will be shattered will be shattered the moment the feeling changes from a pleasant feeling into let's say a neutral feeling or an uh, unpleasant feeling So when it comes to you know, feelings, what is your take on you know, those? Would you say, I am feeling this or that certain quality? Or you know, have you come to a different uh, conclusion? Hmm? So. Is it I am feeling? Yes? Ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> would others agree to this? <laughs> Pardon me? In a conventional way. In a conventional way. But I think we usually try to say that such and such emotion is present. And so, when we say, I am feeling, then what exactly feels? Did you see that? Did you see that self that was feeling?
so something to be explored. From an Amidama point of view, what would we say? feeling arises, that's it, or we would say there is feeling, namely the mental factor of feeling, and that's all. The mental factor of feeling, that is feeling, and it's not I that is who who is feeling something. So there's a huge difference there. But the same token, when thinking goes on, Conventionally, we would say, I think, and now your careful investigation into the nature of phenomena has uh, led you to which new understanding? Thinking Thinking arises, there's just a thinking happening, that's all. Now, with regard certainly to uh, formations, the Buddha has uh, stated the following at Sawati. This is uh, from the third volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, section 23. The title is What is Non-Self? At Sawati. O retreatants, form is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Feeling is non-self. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Perception is not mine, no, this I am not, this is not myself. Volitional formations are no, not mine, no, this I am not, no, they are not myself. And then finally, consciousness, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. What is non-self should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus, one understands there is no more for this state of being. And now comes a methodological question. When we, having heard uh, this uh, short certain sutta of uh, the Buddha about certain, this is not mine, this I am not, certain, this is not myself, then would the proper approach to be to sit in meditation and certainly then the first object that comes up and we say, this is not mine, this is I am not, this is not myself. The second object comes up and we say the same thing again. Would that be the correct approach? Mary, you were saying? There you go. And certainly so instead, what is required? Well, to see 
There you go. So what is required is something to carefully investigate formations as they are unfolding, whatever it might be, material formations and certain feelings or perceptions or volitional formations and consciousness. And impatiently, with good certain determination, investigating, investigating whatever comes along. Gradually, the result of this investigation will be a deep understanding indeed. The first sensation is there's no self to be seen there. With the second uh, formation, again, there's no self to be seen there, etc. So please do understand there's a huge difference between taking some concepts straight from some some text and then putting that onto, superimposing that onto one's experiences in the meditation practice, that being one thing, and on the other hand, actually investigating what is going on with a mind free of concepts and then out of the investigation, slowly, gradually, the understanding of a deep understanding of anatta then arises. It is the second approach that leads to a profound satna change. Maybe one more aspect related to the self. For us on, or for, to simply carefully investigate the objects that naturally come up and then to see with which object and do we identify which which other objects do we not identify? So to see you know, that process of identification as certain you know, frequently as possible and certain you know, to fully understand it. And so the identification could, at least in terms of you know, the text, happen in different ways. There could be the identification with the aggregates as a whole or individually. One could form the idea that the self possesses the five aggregates or there could be the opinion, the view that this or that aggregate or the whole um, are part of the self. And finally, one might hold the view that the self is within this or that aggregate or all of them 
together. So on occasion, we might, in our own practice, see a little bit of that, and certainly to be mindful of it and to know what's going on. Now, when a retreatant keeps time and again seeing how concepts that were previously greatly greatly cherished, how those concepts like concept of time, concept of place, concept of form, concept of uh, even of itself. So seeing you know, those certain concepts gradually disintegrate, what might certainly this have as a consequence? What might this lead to in the mind? When you see your concepts left and right falling apart, then are you greatly delighted? Anxiety. anxiety might arise, that's it. So anxiety, a certain sense of anxiety that might come up, or even more, a sense of insecurity might come up because things that certainly you've um, cherished for many years and then certainly you thought were pretty pretty permanent and certainly you identified certain with these concepts if you see them breaking up then this certain causes a certain degree of insecurity now even that insecurity would be just another object certainly to be investigated and important not to let it impact the mind it's just an object of observation and it will pass allow me to conclude certainly today's discourse on appearance and ultimate reality by wishing May we all, as we keep going deeper and deeper in our practice, as we are mindful of predominant objects, may we learn to see through the initial appearances and certainly may we cut through you know, ultimate reality and thus certainly learn to distinguish what is appearance and what is certain true ultimate reality and ultimately may this lead us you know, to you know, the realization of you know, the fourth and final ultimate reality namely that of nibbana and made this hopefully happen during this very retreat here at the Forest Refuge. And this is it for the discourse. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.